This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, we've got a big guest. We're going to have Don Lemon of CNN as our guest. He's got a new book out. Look forward to talking to him about that and uh, life in the post-Trump world. But first, uh, Rick, I, I, I want to get right to the, 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 the terrible scene, an all-too-familiar scene that we saw uh, unfold uh, in Colorado, in Boulder. Uh, another mass shooting, 10 more people killed, and another frustrated president uh, a, a demanding action. Joe Biden, remember, uh, Rick, was, was the point person for, uh, uh, for, for Barack Obama in seeking change, seeing something to do uh, after the, 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 the tragic shooting in Sandy Hook, uh, those elementary uh, school kids. And, and now here he is uh, seeing what has happened, uh, two mass shootings over, over the, the, the space of a week. Very different uh, events, uh, each of them uh, simply tragic. Uh, so let, let, let's take a listen to a, a little bit of what Biden is calling for now. The Senate should immediately pass. Let me say it again. The United States Senate, I hope some are listening, should immediately pass the two House pass bills that close loopholes in the background check system. These are bills that receive votes of both Republicans and Democrats in the House. This is not and should not be a partisan issue. This is an American issue. It will save lives, American lives, and we have to act. We should also ban assault weapons in the process. Now, and of course, Biden was, uh, was essentially the author of the original assault weapon ban in 1994, which, which expired 10 years uh, later. Uh, but, and, and we should say, we don't know the circumstances, all the circumstances of the uh, shooting in Boulder. Uh, we don't know if either one of these uh, House-passed bills would have made any difference uh, in, in terms of what happened there or uh, what happened uh, in Atlanta. But I have to say, Rick, that the I thought we were seeing the politics of the gun issue change in a rather decisive way, beginning with the 2018 midterms, where we saw a, a number of, uh, of candidates campaign openly... Uh, favoring stricter gun rules, uh, targeted heavily uh, by, by the NRA and other gun rights groups, and win anyway. And, of course, the NRA is a, is a, is a shell of itself. Uh, it's had all kinds of problems, declaring bankruptcy in New York. Uh, it is not the political force it once was. Uh, but, I mean, do you have any sense that it will be, that, that, that we're going to see anything come out of this, that we're going to actually see uh, the Senate act in the way that, that Biden is calling on the Senate to act? You know, John, this is such an emotionally fraught and critical issue that I feel bad being glib in, in political pronouncements around it. But, but the short answer is no. And, and look, I mean, you, you can go back to the, the episode you referenced. In, 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 it was in 2013 that Obama and Biden really committed themselves to some major uh, reforms to the background check system. Manchin Toomey was the vehicle for it. 
it was, you know, and that's eight years ago now. That's, time is time has gone fast since then. Eight years ago, that uh, they had a majority, but not a supermajority, not enough to break a filibuster. The bill died. There really is nothing that has fundamentally changed about the politics, despite the the weakened state of the NRA, despite the fact that uh, several uh, gun control advocates or, or advocates of stricter gun laws have, have been elected to Congress, the, the politics hasn't substantially changed yet. And to the extent that we're looking at what the House just passed last week, uh, it, it, what you need to know is that Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey actually don't support that bill. Uh, they think it, it, it goes too far. Uh, but if you go back to Manchin-Toomey, which you know was a more, a more modest a tightening of background checks, that doesn't seem to that doesn't have 60 votes right now either. There's, just, there's no way to count noses and find that you're, you're at 60 on that. So either, you know, either you blow up the filibuster and you start doing things with a simple majority uh, or you, uh, you you vastly downgrade your expectations around what can get done. Or, as I think is likely as here, you turn to executive orders and um, the Biden White House is hinting strongly at that, at, uh, declaring gun violence to be a national emergency, which would free up. Uh, some other uh, some other thoughts. I'm sure he'll address it at his news conference tomorrow for his news conference of his presidency, as you know, John. Uh, but but in terms of legislative solutions, I- I'm not seeing them. Uh, and and it, the Senate is a deeply divided place, 50-50 Senate. Um, and if you watch that the, the gun hearing yesterday, you didn't come away thinking that anything has substantially changed. It, both sides are back in their, their corners, back to their talking points, thoughts and prayers and all the rest. And um, it's either going to be it's either going to be executive action or probably nothing. At the end of his statement on Boulder, the president was asked a question. This is uh, Tuesday. Uh, he was asked if he had the political capital to get these changes through. I just want you to listen to his very short response. Mr. President, do you believe you have the political capital to make changes on gun measures right now? I hope so. I, I don't know. I haven't done any counting yet. He hasn't done any counting. I, I, I mean, I would imagine when he does get around to doing the counting, he'll come to a conclusion it's hard to escape the conclusion that, that, that you just uh, described. Uh, but, you know, this is the Biden presidency is, is uh, now facing a number of external challenges. I mean, obviously, you had uh, Atlanta and Boulder. You also have the situation uh, on the border, Rick. Um, you know, it's, uh, he's got a bold agenda he's trying to, uh, to pursue, and he's also seeing that, uh, that the, outside, the outside world has a way to interfere. It, 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 that's true, and, and the Senate and the, and the dynamics of closely divided Washington uh, interfere as well. Uh, you know, I, I am struck by the, the range of issues that Democrats have been talking about this week. It's not just gun control. It's not just immigration reform where bills passed last week to um, to legalize the Dreamers, among among other things. Um, you've also got legislation introduced to give statehood to the District of Columbia. Um, there's a there there is a, a major elections uh, rewrite uh, at the national level that uh, was debated in the House, passed in the House, that is being debated in the Senate. You know, there's a the Democrats have control. But there's these, they're still divided on two points. One, the numbers, they just, they just don't add up. Um, and also just the, what the political wisdom of moving fast and moving bold in some of these areas really is. And you're seeing Democrats wrestle with this question of, uh, of how big is too big, how much is too much. Um, I, didn't, I didn't mention the wealth tax and the new taxes that, that President Biden would enact with his infrastructure package. Uh, that's another area where Democrats are pulling some punches and, and rethinking things. And it's a it's a heady time to be a Democrat in Washington. You're getting a lot of big things done, but there's a whole lot of reality checks going on in terms of internal politics as well as external events interfering. And and right now that big bold legislative agenda, you know, it's hard to see where there's a big action item that can get done with really any Republican support at all. 
And our friends over at Axios report that the president had, as presidents are wont to do, brought in some historians, uh, presidential historians, for a conversation. And what was on Biden's mind is, you know, the, the, the wisdom of going really big. Um, clearly, that's what he's got. I mean, I, I, we're, we're seeing discussions of potentially uh, another uh, three, maybe even four trillion dollars uh, in spending, uh, infrastructure, effectively something looking uh, along the lines of, of, of the Green New Deal, a real effort to, uh, uh, to, to, to boost the economy by pumping quite heavily uh, the, the alternative energy uh, sector. Uh, and you know, this all obviously brings us to the question of, of the filibuster and doing away with the filibuster, which Biden had been opposed to. Um, now seems to be a sense maybe maybe he's not so opposed. Uh, he hasn't said yet. I mean, I'm sure he'll be asked uh, at the, the press conference on, on Thursday. But how about that reaction from Mitch McConnell? I mean, McConnell is, what, what, what was the phrase he was using? Nuclear winter, basically? I mean, what, I mean he's... He's talking about blowing everything up if the Democrats decide to uh, to do away with the filibuster. Uh, yes, nuclear winter, which you know might might scare a few Democratic senators, but uh, they don't even need scaring because we don't have a majority of Democratic senators uh, favoring this at this moment. Now, as you know, John, these things never happen just on you know vague principles. They have to happen around actual issue areas, and the one that that uh, is likeliest to bring it to a head. Is uh, so-called HR one uh, the voting rights the, the voting rights overhaul that, that House Democrats passed? Now, there's something that happened last night. I, I don't know a lot of people would have noticed it necessarily, John, but uh, our, our friend Chris Christie had uh, a couple of senators mm. uh, as part of his Christie Institute leadership forum, and and Joe Manchin was asked about that very bill. So the, the audio is a little rough, but listen to this. We should protect voting rights. We should basically make sure that the voting rights of every American has the right to vote with common sense and also respect the state's responsibility for the voting rights and protecting every American. We can come to agreement. Just don't throw all the social agenda inside of the voting and call for the people. I think Joe Manchin said a lot right there. He is not a supporter. I think he's the only Senate Democrat not to support the For the People Act or some ver the version of it that's now in the Senate. Uh, and he doesn't sound like he's ready to, 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 to blow up the filibuster over it at the very least. Uh, no doubt. Hey, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to be joined, as promised, by Don Lemon. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Don Lemon of CNN, an author of an important new book, right up there in the bestseller list. This is The Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. Uh, welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. And before we get anywhere, I need to make a, 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 a confession here. Uh, you are, I think, my wife's favorite person on television. And it's, it can be kind of challenging at home sometimes. But, um, but, but, but she loves you. I mean. I hear that. You have no idea how much I hear that. Well, Jonathan, you know what's great 
is that at least you are, your wife is younger than me, right? Usually I get from kids, like I'll see like a really attractive, like young person on the street and they'll go, oh my God, it's Don Lemon. And I'll go, yeah. And they'll say, my grandmother loves you. (laughs) (laughs) My mom loves you. And I'll say, okay, it's great though. Tell your wife I said thank you and hello. It's so great. It's so great. So, so, you know, you, you've, your book, which which I first of all recommend everybody go out, buy this book, read this book, engage with this book. Um, it's powerful. It's personal. You kind of let it all out on the pages here, and 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 I I like that you have, you know, you've you've framed this as as a uh, as a tribute or a follow on to the to the to the works of, of the great James Baldwin. That the title, you know, of course. His 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 book, the fire next time. That the quote, God gave Noah the rainbow sign. No more water. The fire next time. Tell me why? Why start with why the meaning of the title? Well, first of all, you know everyone is working from home. So if you hear my dogs, I apologize in advance. Um, <laughs> sign of the times. Uh, the why the title because of the James Baldwin was my literary hero. And as you know, Jonathan, during the Trump administration, there were a lot of people who were asking journalists to write books. And I didn't, I have a two hour live show every night and that was enough work for me. And so afterwards, after George Floyd had happened, um, there were a number of things, you know, very fine people on both sides. There was Breonna Taylor, there was Ahmaud Arbery, uh, and then George Floyd, we saw him die, you know, in front of our eyes on the street. I said, I have to do something beyond my platform because so many people were calling me and asking me, what should I do? I don't want my kid to grow up in a, in a, in a, in a world like this. Um, I don't have the language to be able to talk to my kids or my friends about this. And quite honestly, Jonathan, they, they'd say, you're my black friend. I love you. Help me out. And so after phone calls and, and you know, texts and emails, I decided to do this. So my, the book that has impacted my life the most is The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. And he starts it with a letter to his nephew on the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And I was in the middle of quarantine. I couldn't see my family. They usually come to visit me in the summer. I have great nephews. One of them is the same age as James Baldwin's nephew when he wrote his letter. And I sat down and wrote a letter to my nephew because you don't want to call a 13-year-old and say, I just love you so much and I miss you because they're going to go, ew, Uncle Don. I just want to play video games. So um, I was feeling guilty about the world that I had made, helped to create and that he was going to inherit. And I sat down and I wrote a letter and I said, this is what James Baldwin was talking about. This is the fire. We're in it now. And that's how the book came about. And I'll, I want to read a, a passage uh, from the book, if you don't mind, and, 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 and get you to, to, to drill down a little bit more. Um, you write... I consider it an honor when someone thinks highly enough of my opinion to be pissed off by it. And then, yeah. and, then you, and then you add, folks of all races, ages, and persuasions will have to turn toward those with whom we disagree, those who we fear, those who fear change. And we must challenge ourselves to listen to their concerns before we attempt to exercise their dread. We must summon the courage to love people who infuriate us because we love the world we share more than we hate the ignorance and apprehension that shackle those people to an irredeemable past. And as I read that, I thought of Baldwin, and I thought about Baldwin's you know, famous debate with William F. Buckley, um, coming in and directly engaging William F. Buckley, the, you know, the, the great conservative thinker of, of, of the time. 
who's 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 going to be your William F. Buckley? Who 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 are you engaging and focusing on? Who you know is pissed off by what you say, and you know who 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 you think needs to be needs to be reached out to. You know, I don't know if I have a William F. Buckley because because in this time um, we have sensible conservatives who appear to be on the same side of a more perfect union as I am. But we have um, Trumpsters who are not, who are not operating in reality. And so I would say probably my closest William F. Buckley right now is John Kasich. But John Kasich believes in equity and equality for for all human beings. John Kasich is out there not, you know, he isn't making the case against um, integration or criticizing equality or for uh, even Black Lives Matter. He does in a sense. He does say that the left is going too far left sometimes. So I would say that that the closest would be um, a John Kasich or even... And he, also, he also spoke at the Democratic Convention. I mean, he spoke he at the Democratic Convention, but but... What that shows us is that is the progress that we've made, um, John, in that in that conservatives and liberals are not on opposing sides. And I don't I don't necessarily see myself as a liberal, but someone who wants equality and who wants um, justice, um, racial justice for people of color, not necessarily on opposing sides right now. I mean, there may be some differences in degrees. But that, that's a whole different story from, you know, and I don't want to give names of, and you know, you work in the news, of the folks who are out there always criticizing Black Lives Matter or someone who speaks up against um, di- discrimination or speaks up for racial justice and likes to label people as race baiters and, and race hustlers, and so to speak. I don't, I don't choose to, to engage with those people because I don't think it's productive. And I really don't like to give those people a platform on my, on my show because I don't think it's productive. Because when you operate from a lie in a place of hate like that, what you end up with is people believing that lie. And the ultimate um, outcome is an insurrection on the Capitol because people are operating and living in a lie. And so I, I try not to engage with that. So I don't, I don't have a, a, someone who is in the exact model of a William Buckley, but a conservative who I can sit down with, break bread, have a meal, and exchange ideals with I, ideas with, I think is probably a John Kasich. By the way, whose book is on my nightstand? <laughs> you re- you referenced the tumultuous year of, of 2020 and some of the you know head spinning events around uh, the pandemic and and racial injustices. You also you know, there's a line in your book that's gotten a lot of attention and it, you know it jumped out at, at me as well. You, where you, you say that the, in 2016 that Trump was exactly the president we deserved, probably the president we needed. What what in your mind kind of forced the conversation mm-hmm. to the fore in, in having him? as president, uh, and you with a nightly, a nightly show on CNN, in, in the midst of this incredibly uh, emotional and, uh, and difficult year. So, Rick, I, I last four, you guys know, the last four years have been really tough, or the last five years. Here's what I think, here's why I said that. Because I think we had been sort of lulled into this false sense that we were somehow living in a post-racial society, so to speak, not a completely post-racial society. We had elected a black president and everything was moving along swimmingly and we thought that we were going in the right direction towards progress. And then all of a sudden, a Donald Trump comes along 
and he pulls the, the wool off of everyone's eyes, um, mainly white people, about the racism that was just beneath the surface that, that maybe people who um, were a part of the larger culture did not see or didn't recognize, but people of color saw it and felt it. And he exposed that so that for the world to see. So we saw all of the racists in our society, not, and many of who are our, our countrymen are, not all of them, but many of them. And, and the racists and the bigots and the people who were sort of on the fence about how they felt about race in this country were exposed. Instead of hiding, instead of going onto blogs and, you know, sort of sites that they all had the same shared experience, they were marching in Charlottesville with khakis and polo shirts and tiki torches and not hiding. They were showing up at state houses around the country with their with exposed weapons, um, marching with signs and ex- and exposing themselves, meaning who they are and how they felt about racism. So it was it was undeniable the racism that was that's in this country that was hiding just beneath the surface undeniable there it was and guess what as a person from the south who grew up with the clan passing out literature in front of my high school on weekends because there was a church across the street and those were the people they thought could relate to them best this baptist church um i would rather know who those people are and i think black americans especially and and white americans who are of like mind who are our allies we would like to know who those people are. And now we know and now we see them and now we can deal with it. And, um, and I think everyone now can operate from a place of truth. And Donna, I'm interested in your perspective as a, as a journalist uh, with, a, with a, a big platform on, on CNN. I was thinking often, and John and I talked a lot about this over the course of the Trump presidency, that uh, to, we wanted to avoid a trap that I felt like was sometimes set by us, set set for us by President Trump and by many Trump supporters, which was basically to play the role of enemy of the people, uh, to play the role of uh, of, of opposition party uh, in the in the memorable phrase uh, that that one that one Trump operative uh, used. How how did you internalize that? And and as you're covering these events and, and talking about them and interviewing people about the about the events of the last couple of years, how did you balance that in your head and and, and the role that you saw? Uh, not just as a as a person of color or as a gay man, but as a journalist. Rick, I think he I think he he sort of backed us into a corner, didn't he, with the whole idea of being uh, the enemy of the people and being the opposition um, institution, right? Because he attacked institutions, he attacked the institution of journalism, and I think that he was smart in doing it because he knew the truth was not on his side. So if the truth wasn't on his side. So what did he do? He attacked us. He um, he called us um, and he labeled us enemy so that people would not believe us when we told the truth. And how did I balance that? I, I, had, I came to a realization fast that, um, that he was going to do what he did. And especially as a journalist of color, the things that he was saying and the ideas that he promoted, that I had to be on the side of truth and, I, and, and that I couldn't have this sort of false sense of, of, um, of this false equivalence that we had granted to previous administrations because most administrations wanted to tell the truth. They didn't always do it, but most people who were in uh, the position of being the president of the United States or either a candidate for the United States, they didn't always tell the truth, 
but at the end of the day, they wanted to, they tried to, there was some degree of reality in, uh, as to what they were doing. But very early on, on, we learned that Donald Trump had no relationship with the truth. He did not care about it. He didn't care about norms. He would attack any institution or anyone um, who told the truth about him and personally attack people. So it was very tough in the beginning, I have to be honest with both of you, to sit back as an African-American and listen uh, to what Donald Trump had to say, listen to what he said about our fellow countrymen, about our Latino brothers and sisters from day one, that they were rapists and some were good people and I guess some were bad people. Um, that was hurtful just as a, as a human being. So I decided early on that I would not give false equivalence to things that didn't deserve it and that I would call Donald Trump a liar when he lied and a racist when he said something racist or when he showed himself to be a racist. And that wasn't always an easy position to be in. I got lots of pushback and it was very uncomfortable within my newsroom and within the criticism that I got in social media and from other journalists and from other, especially conservatives. But I decided that I was going to act on the side of truth and in behalf, on behalf of the American people and do my job as a journalist and not worry about being painted as some false liberal or um, someone who was um, a never Trumper or who was always attacking Donald Trump. What I was attacking was lies and not a person and not a candidate and not a president, but the lies. And that's how I balance it. I mean, as you write, it's time to have a point of view and not just an opinion. And, and I think you're 100% right as somebody that was in that briefing room day after day, year after year for the past four years. Look, look Jonathan, I, I, I spent I, not, not a lot of time. I saw um, I happened to see Mitt Romney and his wife. They, was, they were celebrating his 52nd wedding anniversary in Florida. It was the first time I took a trip. Um, since in, in a year. And I saw him uh, and you know, just had a, a conversation with him. And a, a president, Mitt Romney, would not, we wouldn't be trying to make a decision about, well, what is the objective truth here? And what is, what exactly is the way to balance this and what have you? We would be operating from norms. He would not be attacking institutions or attacking people personally on social media for telling the truth and doing their jobs. So you're right. It was a time to, it was a, because of who Donald Trump was and is, it's a time to have a point of view. It's not necessarily a time for opinion. And having a point of view and having an opinion, two different things. A point of view is based in truth. An opinion isn't always about truth. So when I give my point of view on my show, it's always based in fact. I'm just giving you how I feel as a person of color, uh, as a person who has a primetime show on CNN, as a gay person. But I'm not giving you lies. I'm telling you my point of view from the lens that I'm viewing the world through. And, and that's a whole different thing than opinion. And, and we would have conversations, and I'm sure you had them over at CNN, at times where it w would seem like it would be irresponsible to air the words of the President of the United States. Because, yes, you could... You could play the, the the sound bite or whatever, and then come out and point out where it was false and what, what, where 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 he was lying. But he but his words speak so loudly, and 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 I I went in there. I mean, I was determined that I was going to treat this guy fairly, no matter what I thought of him personally or thought of his what he was doing. I was a journalist; my opinions were entirely irrelevant. But by the end, I mean, I found myself saying to him, you know, why did you lie to the American people? And and I didn't I didn't. Kind of, I wasn't specific because it, it could apply to the previous four years. Why did you lie to the American people? But, but I, I want to ask you when, if there, was, if there was a moment where it clicked for you, because early on, I mean, very early on, he loved going on your show. I mean, he, 
you know, he was he was warring with Fox, and, and, and he would go on your show, and 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 you you actually seemed to have a bit of a of, of a vibe with him. I think once he even joked about uh, you know being a co-host with you of a of of of, of, of yeah. a show. Uh, when when did it click for you? Did, and about did, me being his press secretary, can you imagine that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so um, here here's the thing. So um, it was it wasn't. He stopped doing interviews with me. By the way, you, you guys know this. I'm not telling you and your audience anything you don't know. Donald Trump loves CNN. He loves, you know, he, he does. Loves yes, he, he loves ABC. Yeah. He lo- he loves he um he loves uh, worldwide brands, right? He he loves celebrity, and if like, CNN is iconic, ABC News is iconic. It's like that's why he loves Diet Coke because it's iconic. He wants to be a part of that. He loves being a part of the mainstream or or and or the celebrity class. He loves it. So um, back in the night that Osama bin Laden was killed, I did an interview with Donald Trump just before it happened, and we got into this huge fight about birtherism. And I, you know, I thought if you go back and look, I think there's something like on, on Dan Abrams thing, Mediaite, or maybe, you know, a couple of people wrote about it. And then Osama bin Laden died. And it, you know, of course, that got all of the press, all of the headlines. But he said he wasn't going to do an interview with me because I challenged him on birtherism. And he called me a racist, right, when what he was doing was racist. Well, it just so happens that I had to, in order to, since he was running, I had to figure out what to do because he didn't want to do an interview with me. And I wanted to do an interview with someone who was running for president and who was gaining traction. So there was someone who worked as a booker who happened to have a personal relationship, one of my bookers, and put us on the phone together and we talked. And I said, listen, I'm going to be fair, but I have to challenge you on things. And he goes, OK, Don, you know how he is. You just have to talk to him and tell him you're going to be fair, which I was. That was the truth. And he says, as long as you're fair, as long as you're fair, come on over to Trump Tower. OK, we'll do an interview. So we did an interview and he said, you know what, you're pretty good at this and what you're doing is fair. But in those interviews, if you look at them, I challenged him. I said, are you racist? And he's like, I'm the least racist person. Are you a bigot? And I was challenging him on his, um, on what would happen. But very quickly, I learned that the people who started to come on to who supported him were carrying lies for him, were obfuscating for him. They would point to shiny objects. They would make excuses about the things that he said. And after a while, it just got tiresome. And I, there was one night when um, Kellyanne Conway came on. And she had recently become, um, you know, had moved over from, uh, from Ted Cruz, right? Because she was a Ted Cruz super PAC holder, remember? And then she became a Donald Trump advisor. And she came on and Donald Trump was giving a speech, I think, somewhere in Minneapolis, somewhere in Minnesota, somewhere. Uh, and it was supposedly about race. And I and she gave a speech and I challenged her about the speech and I talked about race and she kept saying it's not about race. And I said, yeah, but it's Bill this race and listen to, to the words. He's talking about race and it's insulting and whatever. And then she did this whole song and dance about why are you badgering me on the air? Like as if I was insulting her, this woman who is, you know, very adept at doing interviews. And it was I realized in my mind that it was a trick that she was painting herself as a victim and because I was, I was somehow, I had somehow cornered her um, into admitting that what Donald Trump was doing was, was bigoted and she didn't like it. But as it turns out, she had had, if not had written the speech, but it had influence. And the next day she was announced as Donald Trump's campaign at manager. <laughs> <laughs> and then for me, the whole jig was up. I said, you know, this is all a big game and everyone is in this to make money. 
and to promote themselves and to raise their brand and their, their brand awareness. And that's when it really clicked for me. Um, and I just, you know, and, and I knew what was happening. The whole thing, Donald Trump was wanted to raise his brand. I didn't think he really cared about being president. I think it was a, a big, as big a shock to him, maybe even bigger, that he became president than um, to any most other people. So that's when I, that's when it really, when he became, this was during the campaign for me. Yep. But the thing that really got me, guys, not to go on too long, was the shithole. I hope I can say shithole on you. Yeah, we're on the podcast, you're clear. I mean, we're Disney owned, but we're we're, we, we can do it, yeah. The shithole comments for me was it. And finally, like I had been saying, Donald Trump is lying about this and people were yelling at me and I was like, is management going to fire me or am I going to get disciplined for saying the president is lying? And that didn't happen because we have huge support from our president who, who I love. President of our company, meaning. So, um, so when he said the shithole thing, I went on the air that night and the first words out of my mouth were, this is CNN Tonight, I'm Don Lemon. The president of the United States is racist. And I literally could hear in that studio the gasps from the studio people and the collective gasps from people at home watching. Because who had said that? No anchor, a face of a network had said that. And I said, the man is racist. And I went down a litany of, of, of evidence for me that I believe why he was racist. And I think that changed, I, I think that changed the game really for a lot of journalists in, in the business and a lot of anchors who ended up saying the same thing um, after I did. So that was a turning point for me during the campaign and once he became president. All right, Don Lemon, we're going to let you go. We took you, we, we, we've we kept you longer than we promised, but it's great to talk to you. <laughs> I, I Thank talked you. way too long, is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hey, that's why it's a podcast, man. We can, we can, we can go on here, but we, we, I really, really enjoy, uh, enjoy talking to you and uh, look forward to Rick and John, I love what you guys do. Thank you. Continue to do it. And I, I really, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. All right, the name of the book again, This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism by Don Lemon. Thank you, Don. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. That is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Thank you to Trevor Hastings and Adia Robinson and the entire Powerhouse Politics team. We'll be back next week.